Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here. And Lord, we, uh, we do desire to hear from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. God, give us ears to hear, hearts to hear. Lord, we want to know what your will is for our life and then to follow it accordingly. Now, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray for wisdom, and we know that you desire to speak to us. I pray that we might desire to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I knew that we would be a little down this morning, so I want to deal with a very controversial topic. Okay, I figured I probably, if I'm going to offend a bunch of people, this is probably the day to do it. And so, um, you know, hold on. I don't mean anything personally, but some of you are probably going to be very offended in the next few minutes because we need to talk about what is the best NFL team. Now, I know that people have different opinions about this, um, but, but we're going to talk about that, and I, I don't mean to offend anybody. Actually, as a matter of fact, um, I jumped on the bandwagon of the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1978, okay, because they won the Super Bowl that year, and I was eight years old, and why not root for the Super Bowl team, right? So that's what I did, and been with them, I don't know, when they have winning seasons, you know, I root for them, but otherwise I don't really pay that much attention. It's kind of how it works. You know, I was thinking, and I know we got Ravens fans here, we got Reds, Redskins, where did they come from? I know, they, actually going to be in the playoffs for one game? That's amazing. Um, You know, I know we've got a lot of Carolina fans this year, right? Yeah, sure. That's how it works. You know, I was thinking, a hundred years from now, and now I'm going to get to the offensive part. A hundred years from now, a sociologist look at our culture. I think they're going to scratch their heads over our football fanaticism. I mean, think about it, folks. Today, in multiple places across our country, groups of 100,000 or more are going to gather together to, to cheer a couple football teams. And on Saturdays, it's even more so at the college football stadiums. I mean, we gather in huge numbers to root on these teams and even if you are a fanatic, okay, I, I, I just want to say, this is not an evaluation. I'm not evaluating any of us. This is just an observation. You understand the difference, right? Like, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying it's really interesting. So I want to make some observations, not some evaluations. Do you know the difference? That's important so you don't get offended, okay? Just some observations, not evaluations. I mean, think about it. Gatherings together. People will root for their team, and there's extreme loyalty. Like nothing else you've ever seen, there is loyalty for football teams. I mean, and it comes out in so many ways. You've got these plural possessive pronouns that people use, right? We're going to win the game. We lost our quarterback. Don't count us out next year. Are they on the team? No, but they speak of it as if they are. You've got to observe, not evaluate, that that's a little weird, don't you think? And the the people who will come out, and and I have a very clear description here, in Honolulu blue, silver, black, and white. Anybody know what team that is? No? This is from Wikipedia. That's the Detroit Lions, okay? Honolulu blue, silver, black, and white, and they'll hold up one of those giant fingers that say number one. And what's the record of the Detroit Lions? Anybody help me? What is it? Like zero in a bunch or something like that, right? And we'll check. He's not here. I've already looked. They'll they'll, they'll cheer and shout. They're number one. 
and their team's getting beat 31 to 7, and still we're number one. Not an evaluation, just an observation. What is that about? I shake my head and, and kind of scratch my head, that is, and I wonder what is going on? Millions watch, millions pay. Millions associate with this team in a way that goes beyond logic, right? Beyond logic. They associate with the team. Now, I don't know what a sociologist would say about it, but let me as a theologian speak to it. You know what I think it is? We desire two things. We desire two things. One is much more important than the other. Okay? Let me start with with the small one. We desire to be part of a tribe. We desire to be part of a community. We desire to be part of a group of people that all gather together around something and cheer. We all desire to do that. And so, yes, I wore my Pittsburgh Steeler color today, okay, almost, because I am kind of a Steeler fan, all right? But we'll gather in the same colors and we'll cheer for the same team because we want to be part of a group. Now, that's true. But I think even more important than that, we want to follow the one in first place. We want to follow the one in first place. Every single one of us. We want to follow the priority. We want to follow number one. And even if my team is three and 12 or whatever they is, I can hope that maybe they'll be number one and I'm going to be loyal to them even in the three and 12 season because maybe they'll be number one. You see, God has hardwired us for worship. He has hardwired us for worship. And you can see it played out on Sunday morning that we want to worship. But we've only been made to worship one, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, not an evaluation, but maybe you should evaluate. I've observed. Maybe you should evaluate. Who is it that you worship? What is it that you worship? What is number one in your life? What is the most important tribe or community that you belong to? Who do you identify with? I want it to be Jesus. And really, it doesn't matter what I want. The Lord wants it to be Jesus Christ. Identify with him because he calls us to his community and he is number one. And I want to show you that from the word today. Open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're going to spend most of our time there. You're going to jump around a little bit today in your Bible, but primarily you're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1. And what I want to remind you where we've been for four weeks. Okay, we've taken a little break from our study of Philippians. We've been talking about angels for the last four weeks. And so today I just want to kind of use this as a wrap-up to our angel series. And we're going to look at arguably the most difficult passage in all the Bible about angels, Hebrews chapter 1. So if you want to know some of the hard teaching about angels, you read Hebrews 1. I thought we'd spend some time on that today. Before we get that, though, I want to just review what we've talked about with angels. And what I'm going to do is put several verses up on the screen. You, they're, they're all listed out on your worship notes. You can look at them later on your own time. But I just want to review the things that we've said about angels. Now, this is under the umbrella of angelology, which is the doctrine of angels. What does the Bible teach us about angels? It has a great deal to say about angels. 34 to 66 books. 
speak of angels. It's all through your New Testament. It's all through your Old Testament. Every section of the Bible talks about angels. Angels had a a real ramp up in their activity around the coming of the Lord Jesus. We see angels very involved in the account of Jesus coming to earth. But I want to just throw some things at you here to remind you what we've talked about angels. Daniel mentions that they number tens of thousands, times thousands. Really what we see throughout the Bible is they're innumerable. They're innumerable. The number of angels that God created just blows our our ability to understand large numbers. Another thing you see from passages like Daniel is that angels have, now listen to this, they have an intellect so they can can think. They, They have emotion they can feel. And they have will so they can make a decision. Angels have intellect, they have emotion, they have will. Now Matthew 22 verse 30 though explains that angels were created, they aren't born, they don't procreate. There aren't any new angels. Clarence is wrong. It's not true that every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's not accurate. That's not in the Bible. That's Clarence 1-1. You find it nowhere else. Okay? That's It's a Wonderful Life, in case you don't know. In reality, Jesus was clear. Angels don't marry. They don't procreate. God established the number of angels. They're innumerable to us, but God knows the number. And he made how many there are, and they exist today. Now, as we continue through your Bible, Mark chapter 8, though, tells us something that's pretty interesting. And that is that the angels are very much involved in in doing the will of God. And what the Mark 8 passage shows us is that angels are involved not only in his first coming. We've seen that of last few weeks. But I want to show you this passage to see that they're involved in his second coming. Very much so. And they are used as an instrument of God's judgment, angels are. So we think of them in this, you know, nice white suit showing up there on that Bethlehem night and they're singing beautiful songs. But the next time that they'll be primarily seen will be with the return of Jesus. And at that time, they they aren't going to be seen as very friendly. They're involved in the judgment of man. Colossians 1, which will be up on your screen, explains that they are created. Everything. Visible or invisible was created by God. He made it all. He sustains it all. We've seen this over the last couple of weeks. However, all that being said, as, as marvelous as angels may be, First Timothy, Paul writes, we've got to be very careful about the worship of angels. You see, people are drawn to that. And First Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is no mediator between man and God other than the man, Jesus Christ. Angels are not to be worshipped. Angels are not to be prayed to. Angels are not to be be called upon to help you. God is the source of our help. Sometimes he may use an angel. Sometimes he may use somebody. Sometimes he may not change your circumstance. So angels aren't worshipped. They aren't prayed to. They They don't act as an intermediate between us and God. That's not their role. As a matter of fact, when they do show up with men, now listen to this. When angels show up and interact with men, it is most often in a negative sense. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Okay, when the Bible describes it, that is. When the Bible describes what angels are doing with men, here they are called demons. Now what demons are, demons are angels that chose sometime in the past to rebel against God. Angels were given a choice. You either worship God 
or you will follow Satan in rebellion. Those that followed Satan in rebellion against God were called fallen angels. The New Testament calls them demons. And what we see from this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is that their sort of mode of operandi is to come in with false teaching. False teaching. And there are many people who are gathering today in churches and and in sort of religious organizations, and they may not know it per se, but they are preaching the doctrine of demons. Paul said, any other gospel, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, even if an angel comes and teaches another gospel, let him be damned, is what it literally says. So what that tells us from 1 Timothy 4 and Galatians chapter 1 is this is something that demons do. They are involved in the activity of men and where they involve themselves is through false teaching. You know, our our misunderstanding of that and our lack of concern about that demonstrates our lack of an eternal perspective. Because here's the reality. You know, if you were the the great power against God, if you were trying to rebel against God, you'd probably attack me in maybe my, you know, my physical life or maybe my financial life or, or maybe in my, you know, retirement or my home. That's where you would attack somebody. But when demons come to attack and to distract and to destroy, they leave your car alone. They leave the icy road alone. They don't cause you to hit red lights. They come in and they teach false doctrine. Because when we are following false doctrine, we can drive in nice cars that don't break down and hit all green lights and die and spend eternity in hell. And Satan wants nothing but to kill, destroy, and steal. So he doesn't care so much about your car or your house or your clothing. Satan didn't mess up your hair this morning. Demons bring false teaching, Paul warns us about. Say, why are you you talking about demons when when we're talking about angels? And this falls under angelology because they are angels. Here's, Here's what an angel is. You see, you are a spirit that has a body. That's what you are. You are a spirit that has a body. An angel is a spirit that doesn't have a physical body. That's the only difference in our makeup as creatures. You're a spirit with a body. Angels and demons are spirits without a body. Now there's some differences in how they function, us and them. Hebrews 1 demonstrates that. Hebrews 1, another passage that explains that God does use angels to go about and finish his business. And they are ministers to those who inherit salvation. So I don't know how many times an angel may come and divert us from struggle. I don't know. I don't know. I listened to a a pastor this week. Pastor Brock sent me a, a YouTube video and I watched it and it was very good about about all the uh, terror threats that we're, we're receiving now. And he made a great point. 
He said, now you hear about these, these terrorists who, who want to walk in and just blow up cities. This person in California that didn't quite go right for them. And this man who was a Muslim and has come to Christ and is now preaching the gospel with other Muslims, he explains, and I loved it, he said, how do we know an angel didn't stop that terrorist threat? How do we know? We don't know. But it was a great concept to think about. Angels are real, and they minister to those who inherit salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1 explains that angels are watching us. They're watching us. And they long to understand primarily our salvation. They long to look into and understand our salvation. Not you. The angels are consumed with God. They're not trying to watch you and me and figure us out. They're consumed with God. All of his creatures are. All of his his creatures that are following him and worshiping him are consumed with him. And so they see our salvation and they're drawn to, to understand it and long to look into it. And we end this little walk through my top ten verses on on angels with Revelation chapter 5 that depicts before the throne room of God angels worshiping the Lord for all of eternity. You see, that's what we were made for. Now, we're going to look at Hebrews, and and I want to jump in here. Read with me um, at verse number 4. We are definitely jumping into the the context here, but I want you to see, you'll catch on where the author is going here. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, the author writes, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, here's where we're going in Hebrews. Let me just explain to you what what the author of Hebrews 1 is trying to do. See, apparently in this day, when when the book of Hebrews was written, apparently there's some fascination with angels. As a matter of fact, we, we can understand that completely. We can understand a fascination with angels. If you don't believe me, look at Amazon, okay? I just did a quick Amazon search. I think I've got it up on the screen. You can't see the numbers, so I have to read them to you, okay? Under angels and spiritual guides, I did a search of angels. Under angels and spiritual guides, there's 7,320 books that you can purchase from Amazon, okay? Under, let's see, angels and spiritual under new age and spirituality, there's 10,000 books, that you can purchase on Amazon. Click one more slide. Here we have, I guess this must be like, maybe some of you know this name. Her name is Doreen Virtue, okay? And she must be the reigning expert on the doctrine of demons called angel worship. Because there are just, and please, you don't want to read her books. There are scores of books that she has written. And they deal with such helpful things as angel numbers 101, angel therapy Handbook, How to Hear Your Angels, Signs from Above, Your Angels' Messages, Healing from Angels, oh, that'll be interesting, 21 Days to Improve Communicating with Your Angels. Hogwash, you guys. Just complete. This is the doctrine 
of demons. Beware. There is a fascination with angels that people are drawn to. And you might be surprised how many cults and isms have been started by an individual who claims to speak to an angel. Muhammad, angel. Jehovah Witness, angel. Mormons, angel. Seventh-day Adventists, angel. Over and over and over, angel comes to somebody, angel comes to somebody, angel comes to somebody, and what do you know? they got a brand new gospel. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand something that's very important. Angels are interesting because they tell us about God, but they are nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus, the author says, is much superior to angels. And is now going to walk through and help us understand how important this is and how much, how much more superior angels are, I'm sorry, Jesus is, than angels. Let's read it together. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever like a scepter of, unright- of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Now let me explain to you what's going on here. The writer of Hebrews takes seven Old Testament passages. Every one of those quotes are quotes from the Old Testament. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's showing these people who have been raised up in Judaism and are considering Christianity, he's showing them, hey, listen, Your Old Testament has been telling you for centuries that Jesus is greater than angels. So every one of these passages, this might help you understand what's going on here. It's even hard to make it through that, is it not? Your mind wanders. But every single one of those, the author is trying to say, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. He's saying, see this from the Old Testament? That was Jesus. See this from the Old Testament? That's Jesus. See this from the Old Testament? That's Jesus. Seven different times. Seven different times. And every single time, the author is saying, much better than angels. Much better than angels. Now, you might ask the question, why, did, why are angels coming up so often? That's a good question. It's because people would get fascinated with them, just like the Jews in that day. Listen, listen to the, the culture of Judaism in that day. They, now, the Bible names two holy angels. Two holy angels. The Jews named seven. Now, where did they get that? 
Well, I'm going to read for you something that, that they came up with on their own. And it's to demonstrate how angels had risen in prominence in their minds as a warning to us. The Jewish rabbis taught that 200 angels directed the stars and the planets, that there was an angel that directed the calendar, there was an angel that directed the sea, there was an angel that directed the weather, there was an angel that was in hell tormenting people, there was an angel recording every single word. You had an angel assigned to you and it recorded every single word that you ever uttered. This is what the Jewish rabbis taught. They taught that, they taught that there was an angel for, for every single nation, for every single person. They even had this saying. I'll get it right. Every blade of grass is given an angel at the moment of its conception. Jewish rabbi quote. A fascination with angels. Well, what does the author here tell us about angels? Verse number 4 and 5 and 6. First of all, as I said, Jesus is greater than the angels. He says in verse 5, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I want to deal with that a little bit. I want to deal with this concept of son. Okay, so the first thing we see here is that that Jesus is equal with God. He's equal with God. Now, I know immediately what you're thinking. Wait a minute. It doesn't say you are God. It says you are my son. You get that? Look at your Bible and you see it there. It didn't say about Jesus, you are God. It says you are my son. Now, it's very important for us to understand what that means. As a matter of fact, If you read this book right here, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, this is the testimony of a man raised in Islam who came to understand that it was the doctrine of demon and he put his trust in Jesus. And he explains that there are two facts that Muslims believe falsely. Number one, that God has no son. It is a declaration of Islam. God has no son. And secondly, the other fact that they deny is that Jesus was resurrected. The, the Muslims believe that we are, we are believing a lie. They believe that Jesus is not the Son of God and that he was not resurrected. As a matter of fact, they don't believe he was even crucified. They believe that Judas, most of them believe that Judas was crucified in his place. Say, where do they get that? They don't get it from the Bible. They don't get it from the Bible. But what does this son mean? I mean, in my house, if you come into the house and my son is sitting in my recliner, guess what he does? Yeah, he gets up, okay? Because that's my seat. That's not the seat of my son. You see, we have to understand, that's not what this biblical word son means. Let me give you some examples of of other places in Scripture where this is used. For instance, in Job chapter 41, verse 28. You don't have to turn. I'll tell you what it says. It speaks of the son of a bow. Literally it says that the hunter releases his son of a bow. Now if you read Job 41.28, it doesn't literally say in your Bible, likely, unless you have a very little translation, it doesn't say son of a bow. What do you think it probably says? Go ahead and guess. Arrow. But in Hebrew, you know what it says? Son of a bow. So an arrow is a son of a bow. 
Let me give you another example. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, you can turn there if you want to. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, it speaks of a wedding. Okay? And it speaks of the groomsmen at a wedding, at a wedding party. You know what it literally says? It literally says the sons of the bridegroom. When speaking of the wedding party and the, the men standing up on the platform with the groom, going to be married there along his side, he calls them the sons of the bridegroom. Now, is it possible that there are sons? I guess that could happen, but we all know that's not what's occurring. The sons of the bridegroom for the wedding guests. And the ultimate example to show you what I'm talking about is two of these. Barnabas is called, in Acts chapter 4, the son of encouragement. And Judas, in the Gospel of John, is called the son of damnation. Now, when the Bible says that Judas is the son of damnation, what is that saying? It is saying that that is how he is identified. That is his origin. That is who he is. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. Why? Because he's an encourager. James and John, who are men with a heavy temper, were called sons of thunder. When the Bible says that Jesus is the son of God, you need to know what it means. It means he is of the same origin, the same nature, and the same identification. In this day, if you said, that is son of low, he sits in the recliner. That's what that meant. So when it says here, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What it is proclaiming is, Jesus is of the same nature, the same origin, the same identification as the Father. Which of the angels can you say that about? The answer is none. Very strong declaration of equality with God. Keep your finger here and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Go back to verse number 4 of Romans 1. Verse number 4 of Romans 1. And see what it says here. Romans 1 verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, Christ Jesus, verse number 1 it says, verse number 3 concerning His Son, verse number 4 was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here's what this means. Jesus Christ has always been equal with God. He was with God in the beginning, John 1.1. 1, 1. He, he made everything, Colossians chapter 1. And when He was resurrected from the grave, God declared Him God declared him, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he said, he has been declared the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. So what the author here is saying, none of these, none of these angels are declared equal with God at all. Only the Son, Jesus, is declared Son of God. Go to verse number 6. And again it says, when he brings the first one into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. First we saw Jesus is equal with God. Now we see Jesus is reigning, and all the angels are is worshipers. That's all they are, worshipers. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse number 7. 
The picture that I believe what the, the, the psalmist is, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 104, and, and what, it is, what it is showing us is that angels are the wind of God, the fire of God. They're doing his activity. He sends them out and they act. So tell me, why is it? Let's just think about this for a minute. Why is it if God made angels as his worshipers, as his doers, why are there 10,000 books on Amazon today about the spirituality of angels? Why are there 7,200 books on spirituality and connecting with angels? Why is this one woman, I forget her name, why is she a multimillionaire from pumping out books about 21 days to improving your communication with angels? It just, it, it amazes me that people will believe a lie and reject the truth. They'll believe, they believe a fairy tale and reject a truth. Now, the skeptic in the room might say, well, who says what you believe isn't a fairy tale? Romans 1 has declared, the resurrection is where you go. And I challenge you to search that out. Search out the resurrection. No other sign will be given you. Listen to what Jesus said. No other sign will be given you but the sign of Jonah, a man, good as dead for three years, three days that is, is now alive. You say, I want a sign. I want a sign from God. You better watch out. The only sign that is given is the resurrection. Somebody tells me, oh, I'm really praying, if God is real, that he'll give me a sign. If I don't say it directly because of the context, I just can't say it. You need to know, I walk away a little concerned. That is a person ripe for deception. Ripe for deception. You want a sign? You want confirmation? Go to where the Bible directs you. Go to the resurrection. There will be no other sign given. The angels know that. And Jesus reigns in them. They're just worshipers. They're just worshipers. Okay, it's going down to verse number 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, what's interesting about this, and we don't have time to to really deal with this, is a quote from Psalm chapter 45, okay? Psalm chapter 45. It's very interesting that the, the Jews understood this to be a messianic psalm. That means it's speaking about the Messiah that would one day come. And in this passage, what's quoted here in verse number 8, God is now speaking to the Messiah. You get that? God is speaking to the Messiah. The God, the Lord, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is now speaking to the Messiah. 
And look what he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, what should have every single person who, who read that and scratched their head, what should they have realized at that moment about the Messiah? What was God, call, what was the Lord calling the Messiah? God. God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course, Lowell, we all know that. The vast majority of the world does not. The vast majority of the world does not know. That the Christ is God. And God himself calls him God. What we see here is Jesus is ruling. Jesus is ruling. He has a throne. He has a scepter. He's loved for his righteousness. He hates wickedness. He is anointed. Literally, that is Messiahed. It's like the past tense of Messiah. He is Messiahed. So he is ruling. Angels, just subjects. Just subjects. Jump down to verse number 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation. Again, another messianic passage calling him Lord. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. You see, here's what the author is trying to drive at. Jesus, infinite. Infinite has no beginning, has no end. Angels, not so. Angels, like us, are creatures. They're creatures. They're created. If they're created, why would I ever run to them for information? Why would I ever run to them to worship? They're just creatures like you and me. Go to the Creator is what the author is saying. Don't stop at what he made. Go to the maker. Predate them. Go before them to the Son. And then lastly, verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels... Now wake up, okay? Wake up. I know this passage is thick, okay? I know. Wake up. This next point is very important. Okay, everybody, you wake. You want me to do a somersault or a flip off? The, you want me to flip off of here? I'll do it. No, I won't. But are you awake? Okay, you should be by now. All right. Verse 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay, now think of what that means. Enemy of Christ going to be made a footstool. Stomp on the, stomp on the neck. Kill the enemy. Okay? Are they not all? So I want you to see that 14 and 13 are connected. You can't separate them. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? So an enemy, the, my point here is Jesus is Savior. Okay, Jesus is Savior. The enemy is destroyed by Jesus. Snuffed out. Footstool. Angels now are ministers of, of those who are saved. And you see what this is saying? The enemies of God 
will be destroyed. The enemies of God will be destroyed. But it's very important for us to understand the context of that enemy. The context is salvation. Salvation. What this tells us is this. Salvation, hear me, here it comes. Salvation is the most important war of all time. Of all time. That's the war that matters. That's the war that's number one. I'm a fan of World War II. I love to read about it. But that's not the most important war. Okay, you might enjoy, you might have been a Vietnam veteran. I'm, thank you for your, for your service. Thank you. But that's not the most important war. You may be preparing for the potential war on terror that might be coming in your life. That's not the most important war. You may be an advocate for, you know, a marriage definition or for this law or for this change in our government. That is not the most important war. The most important war is the battle over men's souls. And in that battle, Jesus Christ will make the enemies, those that oppose the gospel, like footstools, and he will reign over them. So it says in Hebrews 2, look at it there, verse number 4. So why do you neglect this salvation? If it is this important to God that he will send his angels to bring victory, how can you neglect it? You see, angels are cool, and it's been valuable for us to talk about them. But Jesus is superior. I hope you're chasing after him this morning. Don't neglect, don't neglect what he offers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thanks for your word. And Lord, this was a thick one. And uh, I pray that you would just use it in our hearts. Lord, we want to we worship you because you are worthy. So Lord, we come to you now through your spirit, by your son, in your grace. Thank you for our salvation, Lord. Thank you for the victory you've given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.